Good morning. Some parts of scripture are just, well, <laughs> I was going to say some parts are timeless. Of course, they're all timeless. Uh, but there are some that are just so beautiful, um, just so striking. And uh, for me, that's certainly one of them. Uh, one of Jesus' longer parables, uh, the stories that he told to uh, help the world understand uh, the nature of his kingdom, what it takes to enter his kingdom, and the great love uh, that God has for all that he's made. Um, I remember a conversation with uh, a close friend once uh, who was dabbling a little bit in Christianity. He was uh, attending church at the time. And uh, I had a conversation with him, wasn't a Christian, uh, and he said, you know, I understand that Jesus died for my sins. I understand that he wants me to put my trust in him. But what I don't understand is what difference it makes. What then? What does it mean for me in any sort of ongoing way if I'm going to put my trust in Jesus? I thought, does he really understand the gospel? That was my first thought, and I don't think he did. Uh, Something wasn't clicking for him. But I also thought that's a very reasonable question. Uh, It makes sense if you're going to give your life over to God by putting your trust in Jesus Christ to want to know what difference it's going to make. And he couldn't work that out. Uh, From what he'd heard, he understood in a sense what it meant to enter into God's family, but he didn't seem to have heard, or perhaps he hadn't even been told what difference it would make to belong uh, to God in his life. And I think that can be true for many of us, that the good news becomes old news and we wonder whether it's still relevant. I mean, we might wonder, what next? Shouldn't we be moving on to something else? And what I want us to explore over the next couple of months in this series, Always Good News, is that we do need to move on, but not from the gospel. We need to move on in the gospel. We need to understand how that good news by which we enter into relationship with God is daily good news. You know, we pick up the newspaper every day and the gospel is there front and centre And then we're equipped to apply it to the life that we live, our everyday lives. Uh, You know, I've preached through Romans twice now in two years, uh, six months each time. And both times I've been captivated by those verses at the start of chapter 12. You know, those crucial bridge verses, uh, hinge verses, where we read that in view of God's mercy, that is in light of the gospel, We're no longer to be conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed, transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel, though, that does the transforming. As we understand the gospel and we think about the nature of the life we live and we reflect on the messages that we get from the world about 
what defines us and who we are and how we should behave in different circumstances, we can see the contrast and we go, no, hang on, that's not me anymore. I'm not defined by those things and I don't think that way and I'm not to live that way anymore as the gospel pushes aside those old ways of thinking and transforms us in view of God's mercy. And so over the next eight weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at those things that our culture and and even our experience in daily life says define us. Our age. You are old people or even perhaps elderly, most of you. (laughs) Now, it's fact, but does that define you? And what would it look like to look at your age in light of the gospel? Our personality. Each one of us is different. Each one of us has a different makeup, has had different experiences that have shaped us. But what would it like for the gospel to be the most powerful influence shaping our personality, and kind of making the most of our personality of who we are. Not rejecting it, but making the most of it, seeing it transformed in light of the gospel. Our wealth and our social standing, things that the world holds in great regard, but what would it look like to think of those things as not defining us, but opportunities to use for the gospel? I want to answer that question. What then? What now? What difference does it make to belong to Jesus in all those regular, everyday parts of life? But before we get there, over the next seven weeks, today my goal is to lay a rock-solid gospel foundation so that the gospel-shaped life that we build, that, that we construct over the next couple of months, will stand the test of time. Now, in reality, we've already been doing that. Over the last four weeks, as others uh, have preached to us that wonderful series, In Our Place, it's like we've been drilling down four great holes into the earth and we've already been laying this foundation, four big pillars at each corner of the building. Propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement that Christ uh, is for us. Uh, Redemption, the breaking of our bonds of slavery to sin and death being bought back at the price of Jesus' death. Justification, the fact that though we are sinners, as we've just sung, uh, we have been justified by faith in our Lord Jesus. And that last one that we looked at last week and we're going to be thinking again about this morning, reconciliation. Drilled deep down, God's goal in all those things, in giving up his son for us, was that we might enjoy fellowship once again with our Heavenly Father. And today we come to this passage, this wonderful parable uh, of God's grace to us. And it really is grace that has to overlay these four pillars like a slab, I don't know, 500 mil thick concrete slab over the top of it all as we build our life on this gospel of grace. So let's pray that uh, we would see grace clearly this morning and be transformed by it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ and for this parable which declares it so boldly. Father, we ask that you'll help us each one to own our need for a saviour, to own our need for grace, to set aside any merit that we might um, have previously thought belonged to us so that we can grab hold of salvation with both hands.
and build a life on it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 15, I hope uh, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you uh, have something that you can read God's word on. Uh, And we start there that uh, in verse 11, reading that there was a man who had two sons. So three chief characters in the story, the man and his two sons. Uh, As we go, we'll see that the man is clearly representative of God. Uh, But what of these two sons? Now often this parable is called... I guess has most commonly been called the parable of the prodigal son. A prodigal kind of meaning reckless and describing the way that he uh, squanders his father's wealth. I think often in common language we use that word prodigal as if it means to return home. Uh, But it actually, it's it's what he's done, what he's, uh, the the way that he has wasted uh, his inheritance. Uh, Sometimes it's called, as it is in my Bible at the, the NIV heading there, is the lost son. Uh, And that's because it's uh, the third of three parables, two shorter ones, the lost sheep and the lost coin, first of all, and then this one, the lost son. And that makes a certain amount of sense. But it really ignores the fact that in this very first verse of the parable, we meet not one, but two sons. And it's really easy to focus on the first son and lose sight of the second son. But if we do that, we'll miss, I think, the point of the parable. So there are two sons here. Uh, The focus certainly is, though, uh, on uh, the first son at the beginning. Uh, And this kid is a real piece of work, to be honest. Uh, He's not that likeable. Look at what he does. Uh, Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, A simple request, and yet a profoundly disturbing one. Uh, In the culture at the time, uh, an inheritance wasn't meant to be something that anyone took for themselves and then spent on uh, cruises and, you know, whatever, on themselves. It was meant to be something that was safeguarded for the next generation. In fact, the inheritance was really held in the land that belonged uh, to the family, Uh, And so for the son to come to his father and say, give me my share, well, it's hard to know how that would have worked. It's likely that the father would have had to go into debt somehow uh, and perhaps sell off part of this ancestral land, more than likely one-third because the younger son would have been entitled to one-third, the older son to two-thirds. And so it's it's a very brazen request from this younger son. And yet it's actually worse than that, as you might know. An inheritance is meant to be something that comes to you when your parents pass away. Uh, I wonder how you would feel if any of your children came to you and said, you know, I'm getting a bit sick of waiting for you to just, you know, drop off. Um, I've got, you know, things I'd like to be doing now. And really the only way I'm ever going to get the money that I need for it is if, You give me my inheritance, so give it now. Essentially, it's saying, I'd be better off if you were dead. I'd rather have the stuff that I'll get from you than you. And that's reinforced when we see what this young son does next. 
Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country. In other words, he really doesn't want to have anything to do with his father. He's got his designs, he's got his plans and dreams. He knows the life he wants to live and it's got nothing to do with his father or his family. It doesn't seem that he cares if he ever sees him again. He's wished him dead. He's already got his inheritance. Why would he bother? He really is um, a real piece of work, isn't he? He just wants the good life, the life of fun and freedom and to do whatever he pleases. So that's exactly what he does. But it turns out that the good life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. So off he goes to this distant land and we read that there he squandered his wealth. That is, he squandered his inheritance in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, it got worse because there was a severe famine in that whole country. And of course, he began to be in need. What could he do? Well, he went looking for work and there wasn't much work going, perhaps a little bit like now. And so, in the end, he had to hire himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Now, that is stooping pretty low. Uh, Maybe for most people, but all the more for a Jewish person for whom pigs were unclean animals. And yet there he was, in the mud, with the pigs, starving quite literally starving. And he must have been starving because he wanted to eat their food, the pig's food. I don't know what pigs get fed these days, but I'm pretty sure back then it would have been the leftovers, no doubt about that. But no one gave him anything. He was desperate. And you know what? I've got to admit that as pitiful as his plight is, I have a hard time feeling sorry for him because he's getting exactly what he deserves, I reckon, here. And I don't think I'm the only one that would have been thinking that either as Jesus told this parable. don't know if you noticed uh, in your reading of this passage, verses 1 and 2, who is listening? Who is Jesus speaking to? Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. There's actually two groups of people listening. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. They're the first group, tax collectors and sinners, the bad people, the outsiders. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, well, they're also there listening and looking and watching and seeing how Jesus welcomes these Pharisees, these, sorry, tax collectors and sinners, and they mutter to themselves, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now I wonder for that group, for that group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as they're listening to Jesus tell his story, whether they're thinking, ah, Jesus isn't so foolish after all. He's telling these sinners and tax collectors how unworthy they are. And uh, this younger son, he deserves all that he gets. I think they might have been thinking that. But Jesus isn't done with his story, is he? And the tone of the parable shifts dramatically 
in verse 17. When rather, rather than just sort of standing on the outside of the story and hearing it narrated, we get to go inside the mind of this younger son for the first time. And we hear his response to his predicament. In verse 17 we read, When he came to his senses, when he came to himself, literally, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. It's all run out, and he's realised what a fool he's been. He's realised how good he had it with Dad. He's realised what he's given up and what he's left behind. And he hatches his plan. With no other alternative, I will set out and I will go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went. Maybe there's some hope for this son yet. He's come to his senses. But he's asking a lot, really, isn't he? To return to his father and expect not to be turned away, not to be treated in kind. You know, there's an old saying, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And I think that's what's happened for this young man, isn't it? He's hit rock bottom. And sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you're willing to turn around. And he does. He turns back, it says. He turns back to his father. He makes the long journey. You can just imagine him, can't you, rehearsing his speech. I've got to get this right. I've got to get this right. Uh, One wrong word and it'll all be over. But in verse 20 we read, But while he was still a long way off, a long way off, his father saw him. I suspect that it wasn't by chance that the father saw him, but rather that the father was looking and waiting, waiting for his son to return home. And when he did see him, he was filled with compassion for him. The young son doesn't know this yet. He just sees this wild, crazy-looking man who he's pretty sure is his father running at him, probably carrying a scythe or something from his work in the fields and thinking, oh, no, this doesn't look good. But when the father reaches the son... He doesn't hold back. He throws his arms around him and literally it says he falls on his neck. He kisses his neck. He says, oh, son, you're home. But the son, he's got his speech, hasn't he? He knows what he has to say. He knows how important it is to uh, ask for forgiveness and then uh, you know, appeal to his father's good nature. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get to finish. Father's not interested. He doesn't need to hear it. All he cares about is that his his son has returned home. And so he calls the party together. He orders the servants to get this and that. Things that would only be done for a son, things that would only be given to a son not a hired servant. And so he restores him. And he explains why in verse 24, this son of mine was dead. He wasn't literally dead, but 
cut off from his father, the relationship had ended. To his father, he was dead, and he'd chosen that. To him, his father was dead, but now he is alive again. They are reunited. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. This father is truly gracious, isn't he? Now, you might think, well, surely any father would behave that way. And yet, culturally and even personally, I think there was all sorts of reason to at least hold the son at arm's length and see if he proved himself after a while, to see if this repentance was genuine, to see if he'd learned his lesson. But none of that for this father. Rather, he welcomed his son home fully, freely, without any expectation of anything being done to restore the inheritance or pay it back or anything like it. It's really the meaning of grace. It's undeserved favour. God doesn't just stop short at mercy, not punishing his son. He lavishes grace. He throws a party for him. He kisses him from head to toe. He gives him the royal treatment. And it's the last thing that this son deserved. This is where we have to remember, though, that there are two sons. This is a story of two sons. And the next word takes us back to the other one. Meanwhile, verse 25, back at the ranch, as it were, the older son was in the field. When he came near the home, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what's going on. The servants sharing the father's joy, it's time to party. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And this is where we see the counterpoint to grace, the opposite to grace. In a sense, the expected response, the deserved response to grace. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. Now, judging by the reaction of the second son, he seems like a bit of a jerk too, doesn't he? I don't know what this father did wrong exactly in raising his kids, but in different ways, uh, they're both pieces of work. But again, the father shows grace. See, again, he doesn't treat this son as he deserves. Rather than going out and giving him a whack around the head and saying, you get in there now, you will, yada, yada, yada. What does he do? It says, so his father went out and pleaded with him. Pleaded. (laughs) Earlier with the first son, he hitched up his skirts and run to meet his son. He'd thrown dignity aside in doing so. Didn't care who saw the hired servants in creating a spectacle of himself like this for the sake of his son. Didn't care. And here, again, dignity, he casts it aside. And he pleads with this ungracious son. Please, come in. 
Don't stay outside. Don't be an outsider. You're my son and he's your brother. Come inside and rejoice and celebrate. But the son, the older son, is having nothing of it. He says, Father. Well, actually, he doesn't say Father. He doesn't call him Father. He just says, Look. All these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice it's not my brother, it's this son of yours who has squandered your property, which means mine as well, When he when who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Again, though the father continues pleading, and though, in a sense, this older son has now estranged himself to his family, sees himself as an outsider. This son of yours, I don't want anything to do with this family business. The father insists, no, no, no. Don't define yourself that way. Don't define yourself apart from us. My son, he calls him, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. But do you see what's happened for this older son? Somewhere along the way, his understanding of his identity and his relationship with his father has gone awry, gone askew. Do you notice the way that he describes his relationship with his father? He says, verse 29, all these years I have been slaving for you. Somehow or other, this son has misunderstood who he is. Misunderstood what it means to be the son of this gracious father. He thinks their relationship is based on his hard work and all that he has done and his obedience. Not once have I disobeyed your orders, he says. But it's distorted their relationship to the point where now he feels hard done by. And it's his turn to choose out of the family. What a tragic result. His father tries to set him straight, and yet the parable finishes without us knowing how the older son responds. So we have these two sons, and you'd have to say that on the appearance, on the out, outer, they, they seem very different, don't they? You know, there's the young, reckless son, and there's the old, responsible son. But in the end, they both make the same mistake. They both misunderstand their relationship with their father. They both turn away from him at different points in different ways. But only one of them responds to his need by turning back and seeking forgiveness 
and being overwhelmed and surprised by the lavish grace of God. He hits rock bottom, he turns around and he's restored by his gracious father. And that's the goal of God's grace, you see. Our full reconciliation, our full adoption, our full experience as children loved by our Heavenly Father who will never turn us away in spite of our failures. His grace knows no end. He offers us a place at his table. He offers us a share in his inheritance, an inheritance that we had either thrown away in a reckless attempt at independence or an inheritance that we thought that we had somehow had to work for. He says, no, no, I've... it's a gift. It's yours. It belongs to you. And all I want for you is for you to enjoy it. Enjoy belonging to me. Enjoy being part of my family. That's all that this father says and it's all that our father says to us. God says to us, neither our sin nor our good works should define us anymore. We need to let go of them both so that we can come inside and join the party. He embraces the sinner and he pleads with the saint, the self-righteous person, be reconciled. That's his plea. Be reconciled to me and to each other. Now I wonder if in these two sons you see yourself at all. And I don't mean one or the other, I actually mean both. Because I think we're quite capable of both, of being both. We're quite capable of being the younger son who really wants independence from the father, wants independence from God, wants to be able to run our own race and do our own thing and make up our own rules. We're quite good at that. Of course, we want... We want to enjoy the inheritance. We want to enjoy all the gifts that come from God. We just don't want him in the picture. See, we're all quite capable of that. And we've all done that. But we're also quite capable, and I suspect most of us, if not all of us, have behaved like the older son. That is, think, thinking that God owes us something that we deserve to be in his family, that we don't really need grace like everybody else. And if you've never thought that you do have those thoughts, then just think again, because I wonder, here's a test. Do you ever look down on others? Do you ever think yourself a more worthy person than others? Do you ever find yourself judging others and the choices that they make? Maybe not explicitly, but all of us, at least in subtle ways, we do that. And just like the Pharisees and teachers of the law, people who were very religious, they were the insiders, I think that churches can almost grow this kind of mentality accidentally because we get used to belonging. We get used to thinking of ourselves as those who belong when others don't. 
See, the reality is that we all need God's grace all the time. We need his forgiveness for our sin and we need his forgiveness for our self-righteousness, which is just another way to sin. See, I think the wonderful truth taught in this parable is that we are not sinners or saints. That's not how it works. We are sinners and saints. Only a sinner saved by grace. We sang it over and over again this morning. That's the reality. We are, in fact, sinner saints. That's who we are. And the beautiful thing about that is that the focus comes off us and onto God and his grace to us in Jesus Christ. He forgives our sin. He makes us saints. He sanctifies us, makes us holy, welcomes us home into his family. And sinner saints are people, each one of us and all of us together, a living testimony to the incredible grace of God. Now, in coming weeks, as we explore a whole range of topics relating to our character and our life circumstances, the goal is to discover and enjoy our new identity as sinner saints and grow in our appreciation of how God's transforming grace can shape us all to be more like Jesus. It's going to be a challenging time. It's going to be challenging to be humble about our own shortcomings, and it's going to be challenging to be gracious about each other's. But my prayer is that the parable of the two sons will be with us all the way, a constant reminder to us of the grace that's at the heart of the gospel so that we can rejoice in the grace that God has shown us and grow more and more in being gracious to each other. So that that goal of reconciliation that stands at the end of the gospel, restored to our Heavenly Father and restored to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, is achieved among us. Let's pray that it would be. Our Heavenly Father, gracious Heavenly Father, We come to you like that younger son, knowing our need for forgiveness. We come to you acknowledging that what we deserve at best is a place like a hired hand and yet experiencing the fullness of your grace that you welcome us back and give us the full rights of children and heirs, co-heirs with Christ no less. Father, we also come to you acknowledging that sometimes we have a very graceless spirit. That sometimes your grace to us just doesn't translate into our grace to others. So, Father, we pray that you would change us in that respect as well. That as your grace becomes more and more real and relevant for us, each one of us, and restores us to you, we would also be restored to each other. That wherever um, we aren't showing, showing grace to each other, we would begin to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.